Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Survivor Story Series episode, our guest is Anari Shaw, founder of The Matriarchy, an organization that envisions that all genders can come together to discuss gender-based violence, its causes, and its impact in order to affect positive policy change. Anari speaks with us today about growing up first-generation American, gender roles, and how her identity as an Indian American informed how she and her family and community responded to her own Me Too moment. Welcome, Maneri. Hi, Terry. Let's start with your childhood background. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan, so Troy. And what kind of family background did you have? So my, I'm first generation, and my parents are from India. So I was born in the States and raised in the States, but I had kind of this like multicultural background where I didn't speak English till I was you know, four or five. Um, I'm kind of a dual dual citizen. Like, I'm not actually a dual citizen, but inside I'm a dual citizen. You're an international citizen (laughs) of the world. (laughs) Yes. And we had a big Indian community in Michigan. So um, I was pretty immersed in it until I left home, even after I left home. Did you have siblings? Yes. Um, Older or younger? I have one younger brother. Okay. And what was it like growing up in a home with immigrant parents? in particular, an Indian father. So you shared with me some of the challenges of growing up in that environment. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the positives is that you get to have this kind of whole level of like awareness and groundedness that, you know, you have to be more aware of everything because you have, you know, your parents that you come home to that are making Indian food every day and watching Indian television. And then you go to school and the values and the language and everything is completely different. I think the two things that, so that's the positive part, I think, is I think I'm a more aware human and I, I think I have a lot of unconditional love because Indians are so community driven and all of my extended family lived in Michigan. So that as I've grown up, I've realized really how powerful that is, especially in a country where people are so isolated from each other. The hard part for me was that Indian culture is much more patriarchal. And so, you know, I, I think I realized from a pretty young age that I was you know, always expected to do things in the kitchen that my brother wasn't. And, you know, like people always, I don't, I didn't experience this, but a lot of my friends who have brothers felt that they, their siblings' opinions were taken much more seriously than their own if they were the women. Um, and generally, like if we had family parties, women would serve and men would just kind of hang out. And there was just, even as women have entered the workplace, it's like interesting, right? Because it's like, oh, now it's not just that women clean and men work, it's women work and clean and do everything, all the child stuff and men just work. In my house, I would say my dad still helped out with cleaning and, and stuff and it was fine. But I think where I saw the where I saw the separation really happen is when we were all together. Like if my entire extended family got together, the role separation became increasingly apparent. Um, like it was much easier for people to just fall into those roles. And I was aware of it from a very young age. Um, I would say that a lot of people in our family are only talking about it in recent years because of everything that's going on. So now it's become more acceptable to talk about, whereas when I was young, I felt like people kind of had this opinion of me as like, why are you always so angry? And what made you characterize your home environment as more patriarchal compared to your friends? 
Well, I, I, you know, I than the average American household, in other words. Yeah, because yeah. I think of I think of when I think of patriarchy in the U.S. There's the intersection with organized sports, so NFL on Super Bowl Sunday. You recognize that there are bifurcations and roles that women and men play. So women are in the kitchen, and they're supposed to be getting together the snacks, and the right. guys are in the living room watching the game. So right, it sounds right. similar to what you describe, right? I think maybe I wasn't aware of it in relation to what my friends' parents were like for a while because I was just young. There's a couple things. One, when we all got together, I did notice that women were always responsible for snacks and men could kind of do whatever. Um, and my grandpa would make, you know, he's from a different generation. He would say things like, it's women's duty to serve men. <laughs> so we, I mean, we would kind of laugh because he was old and, you know, it's just a different time. But so that was like the first indication of like, okay, people see it a little bit differently. But I think as I got older, I became more aware of how it impacts career choice. Um, from a young age, I was encouraged to do something part time so that I could be there for the kids. Um, men were in no way encouraged to, you know, why at the age of like 14 are you already being told do something so you can sacrifice for your children? It's, it's, I think there was this assumption that women would just want to do that and it was their role to do that. And when I would try to question it, I was always just told, you'll feel differently once you have kids. And so even before I had a voice or an opinion on it, it was like people were already trying to take it away. Um, and luckily, I clung on with golem arms. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was interesting. I was told and, and you know, I, I think luckily, I, I, the way that I reacted to that was I decided not to be in medicine just to go part time. I decided to go explore and then be a writer and then start my own business. And now some of People in my family support that. But in the beginning, there was lots of comments, right? People would literally say things like, how are you going to find a partner? And things that they would never say. My brother tried to start a business at 23 and nobody would ever say something like that to him. So I think that's when I really started to dig deep into why are women and men treated differently from a younger age? And I generally felt like when I would talk to my friends that weren't Indian about it, they were kind of shocked at some of the things people would say to me, specifically in relation to being part-time or finding a partner. There was a lot of pressure from a much younger age to be incorporating that into my mindset all the time. And that I, I definitely noticed in relation to dating and love and career, um, people that were not Indian were not getting that same pressure. If you look back several decades in the 50s, for example, women who were going to college were primarily going to find a husband, right? And, and, <laughs> and yeah, and actually when I started college, there were some jokes about that, not with me, but amongst our peers, that uh, this was an opportunity for them to find someone who would be suitable for their social class and status. And, and so I think that doesn't necessarily, it's not exclusive to the Indian community, but it's interesting that your friends and your peers thought it was. So in right. some ways, it was what, what they experienced right. it was invisible to them. Maybe. Yeah, that's true. And well, I think I think and maybe it wasn't as I think one thing that's interesting about having parents where English isn't their first language is in a way they end up being more direct. They can't be as nuanced. So when they think something, they say exactly what they mean. Like, oh, but how are you going to find a partner? People who aren't Indian, their parents might have a way of masking that statement with other words. And then when I'm like, wait a minute, what does that mean? My parents will say things like, oh, well, we just, it's because we don't, like, it's not our first language. I'm like, no, you actually meant exactly what you said. It's just that you didn't have a way to mask it, which I think is kind of fascinating. Are you familiar with the comedian Russell Peters? Mm -hmm. So he, he's um, Indian-Canadian, I guess, right? Or is he mm -hmm. American? He's Canadian. I don't know, I think Canadian. And, and he jokes about 
the intergenerational differences between immigrant Indian parents and how much pressure they put on their kids. And so I, when you talked about your family, I, it made me think about, in general, Asian American parents, immigrant parents, mm-hmm. and Asian American children, and the kind of strict, almost authoritarianism that we grow up with, and how that's very comparable to the kind of authoritarianism that exists in heterosexual coercive relationships. Have, yeah. you, have, have you thought about that now as an adult looking back with their similar tactics and behaviors that you can draw upon? Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and this is something now I'm learning how to choose to give rather than be pressured to give, but there's definitely this concept of like filial piety and pressure from family to do things for them because they provide for you. So not just, when, I, when I think of family too, I don't think of just my immediate family. I'm thinking of like the 150 people in Michigan that are my family, right? I have a huge family. And there's definitely some level of um, like, oh, we did this, you know, like pressure to do certain things because they've done so much by moving here and providing for you. And so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if you want to give back, but I think it's an important distinction to make is like, am I being pressured to give give back or do I want to? And then to make decisions that really align with what you want to be doing so that there isn't resentment. As an adult, I look back at previous relationships, um, not the one I'm in now, but Previous relationships, I think that definitely crept in. Um, I think I, I normalized it, but there was, you know, I dated men that had this certain, they weren't even Indian. So, it's, you know, it's not just Indian, it's, it's everyone. It's, it's um, they generally felt like I, they could pressure me into like, this sounds weird, but kind of pressure me to love them. So it always kind of felt like it, it was subtle, but it was there and it was growing. Like their needs came just slightly above mine. And I think also there's the context when you when you think about the expectation that a filial piety, it, it makes the relationship more transactional and less about unconditional parental love. Right. right. And so similarly, like when you're in a dating situation, if let's say in a heterosexual relationship, a man pays for a woman on the first date then there's the expectation is set up in society that she might put, you know, put out, so to speak. Right. And, and, and so there's, it removes any opportunity for individual choice in that scenario. Yeah. I would actually say the way I felt in these relationships now looking back that didn't work out, it wasn't even okay. Indian growing up Indian and how I was raised completely aside. I just think heteronormative, whatever rules in general, there's this sense of um, men get jealous because they care. Men react, get reactive because they care. I don't know. It's total bullshit. It's, it's you can control how you act. You can control the level of pressure you put on someone and nobody owes you anything. People choose to be together. And I think in the past, the way that I felt with a few of my relationships was there was this general feeling of like, well, I wanted this and you didn't do it. So now I'm mad at you without consideration for what I wanted um, or why I wanted something. And I would go along with it because I generally felt like, well, this is the price you pay for love. You give. And, and, and again, I wasn't thinking, do I want to be doing this? I was thinking, I don't want to lose this person. Um, and that pressure was subtle. But again, in the first year of a relationship, something that's subtle can become so much worse in later years. And, you know, I remember one of my friends made a comment with, and this is funny, it's my ex, he might listen to this, but her husband was watching me and him. And I went to go we were at a bar and I went to go order something and um, two guys and another girl started talking to me and he was like looking at them like he was he was angry and my friend's husband was you know a feminist and 
he said he knew in that moment that it was not going to work out between me and this guy. And so after me and him broke up, I was telling my friend, I was like, oh, I know everyone thought it was going to work out. And she goes, no, my husband knew right away. And so I think that also showed me that there's men that are not like that. Right. And they don't. His comment was. Aneri is a loving person. She is a vibrant, energetic person. And that small interaction showed me he is this guy is not on board with that. He doesn't like it. And he's like, it's just the first year of the relationship. That feeling is going to magnify if they continue to stay together. And he was right. It did. And, you know, it's hard to talk to people about because when you say it out loud, people are so conditioned to think, well, that's just love. That people are like, that's not a big deal. Right. So basically, Mm. your friend's husband was able to recognize the possessiveness as a rejection of your Identity. Your personality, yeah. yeah, and being able to celebrate and embrace who you are and let you be you. Like love is love is love. He was not able to say it that way, and it manifest. Now looking back, I'm like it manifested in so many ways, and he was able to pick up on it right away. Um, which I he didn't even really know me. He met me that day, so I thought that was fascinating when she told me that. And I think you also made a great point in terms of giving up yourself. Like at what point, you know, you felt like there was an obligation to to give back. But the way you described the giving back, it sounded to me like a sacrifice versus a compromise. And there's a difference. And it's important for us to negotiate what that difference is. Yep. And and so now, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because now my boyfriend is such a feminist, more so than I am. Like he's given me so much space to be mad, to be angry, to be happy, to be whatever it is that I am about my life, the state of affairs, you know, whatever it is that I'm feeling. And um, I was watching actually the show on Netflix yesterday or a couple of days ago called Dating Around. And in the second episode, there's this Indian girl and she goes, you know, she was married from the age of, I think, um, like, I don't know, 21 to 30 or 25 to 32 or something. And then she got divorced. Now she's 36. And on a date she was on with a guy, he made this comment like, you know, when you love, when you fall in love with someone, like you each give up a part of yourself and that's what true love is. And she goes, no. She goes, when, you're, when you really experience love, it means you can be the best version of yourself. And I kid you not, this guy got so angry that he, like, he was literally angry. He goes, he starts bashing on her. For, she admitted on the show that at 25, she felt pressured to get married to this guy because they were both Punjabi and they had been dating for six years. There was a lot of pressure from both their families, so they did it. And in the end, he ended up cheating. But she's like, I was also a shitty wife, so it didn't work out. And his take, once he got angry about her not subscribing to this idea that you have to basically give up stuff to be in love, he started harping on her about, how could I ever trust you? You weren't in love and you promised this guy you loved him. How could anyone ever trust you? You should never tell anyone this. And she was like, okay, this is a cultural clash. Like We came from different backgrounds and he basically stormed off. Did the episode actually show his reaction to yeah. her statement? Yeah. And how did you feel? Did you feel scared at that moment? Was there a oh, part of you that retreated in fear? No. I, well, <laughs> I was actually really impressed by her composure because not once did she get aggressive. She just wanted, like, to me, it showed that she had gotten to a place of just complete self-awareness and happiness. And she didn't ever get mad at him. She actually just approached it from like a, we're obviously never going to see each other again. So let's actually have an honest interaction. And he, it was almost, I didn't feel scared. I felt actually sorry for him. I was like, he's scared right now. Like he feels very scared by her self-assuredness. And it was fascinating to me that they showed that. And then she was okay, able so to. Let me, of- let me ask you a different question. If, she, if you weren't confident 
that she already made a decision to not be with him and she still was debating that. Oh, I would be scared. I was actually felt like, oh, she's okay. Like, I think if she had reacted with any kind of um, emotion, like if she had been like yelling at him or really scared, but then still wanted to like make it work. Like to me, the relief happened when she was like, well, we're obviously never going to see each other again. I was like, oh, she's, she's good. But also she's been through divorce and she's 36. Like she's clearly more self-aware. Um, I think a lot of women in her situation maybe wouldn't have been strong enough to make those claims. And yes, I would have been scared watching it if, if she hadn't had that reaction. So getting back to your story, mm-hmm. when you were around 25, mm-hmm. that's when you had a very significant experience. Can you talk about the relationship and the subsequent event? Yes. Um, so yeah, around 25, 26, I, d- I don't even remember the exact date, but um, I had known this guy that I met through a cousin of mine who uh, he, for about five, six years. And we weren't close friends, but we were acquaintances. Like I had known him for a while and he lived in New York. We would hang out sometimes. Like we had a lot of friends in common. And one night he invited a friend and I over for drinks before we were going out to meet other friends. And it was him and a friend and me and a friend from that I had known for a long time, a girlfriend. And it was him and a guy friend. And we're like, okay, sure. We'll come have a glass of wine and then we'll go out. So we go to his place and you know, he makes us both a drink and we each have it. Um, it's probably around 7 p.m. Um, that's the last thing I remember fully. I woke up, me and her both woke up the next day around 11 or 12. So meaning we had slept for a long time. And my phone was dead. I was really confused. But when I woke up within like 30 seconds, when my eyes cleared a little bit, I knew exactly what had happened because I, you know, my body had a vestigial memory of it. Um, you know, you, when someone enters you like that and they, you know, violently assault you, even if they've obviously he roofied me, um, you had some memory of it, but it's, it's a very scary thing because you have just like what music was playing. You kind of have these like vestigial memories. And I remember looking at my friend and he didn't do it to her. Um, I wasn't, you know, I, some of my clothes had been taken off, but not all. He wasn't in the apartment, but I looked at my friend and in that moment, we both knew exactly what had happened because she had gone through something similar in college. And before we could even talk about it, um, we heard his keys in the lock. And our, both of our immediate reactions was just total fear. Um, and we both quickly got up and like ran out. And I've never spoken to him again, um, which we used to hang out. He, he knows I know. Um, he still lives in New York. He's a successful, good looking guy. He's doing OK, I think. I, you know, I don't know. But that day, me and my friend went to brunch and I was freaking out. Like I was trying to talk to her about it. I was having like, I was sweating. I wasn't, neither of us were hungover at all because we hadn't drank a lot, right? And I think that's what happens. She was flying out that day to go somewhere. So instead of, you know, we, she didn't really entertain me freaking out. She just kind of kept talking about how he was hot. I, you know, it's funny that next day was kind of a blur, but. We didn't have an honest conversation about it that day. And subsequent to that, are you still friends with this woman? Have you had a conversation yes. with her yes. since? Yes. yes. And yes. What, what, is, yes. What, was that, what did that entail? Yeah. So a few years later, we were together and she looked at me and goes, how have we never talked about that night? And without her even saying what she meant, I knew exactly what she meant. And then we spent the next like four hours talking about it. And her comment was, you know, it happened to me in college. I knew exactly how you felt. I knew she's like, I think subconsciously because I knew I was leaving. I didn't want to open this wound and then leave you. And she's like, I was scared. And to be fair to her, when it happened to her in college, 
And she told me, I don't think I was all that understanding. I don't think I understood it. What was your reaction to her story? I don't remember. I think I was horrified and I wanted her to report it. But then after a day, I don't think I ever asked her about it again. I didn't know how. I think to some extent I was like, oh, well, she was at a party. Like I didn't, honestly, this sounds, it's so fucked up, but I don't think I fully understood what it really feels like to have had a drink with a bunch of people that you trust. And then that's something like that happened. It's just a very, very scary feeling that, you know, you, you watch all these movies and you watch Law and Order and you watch, you know, you, you listen to people talk about what's going to keep you safe and you form this idea in your mind that you're going to get, that if you just don't talk to strangers or don't walk alone at night, that you won't get assaulted. That is so far from the truth. That's never really what happens. It's usually someone you know, and they usually do it in a situation where you let your guard down. And so the hard part about being in that situation is you don't really know where to go from there because you generally feel like you've been lied to your whole life. So anyway, that night me and her talked about it. And then we Googled what happens, like what you should do after you get roofied. And what really drove both of us crazy was that really it's just a simple test. Like you can go to a hospital, they can do a simple test within 24 hours and then you can get proof. And I think for both of us, that was a wake up call of like, why did nobody ever tell us this? How did we even not know the name for what, like Rohypnol, right? Like we didn't know that name. We didn't know that you could get tested. There were so many unknowns and we felt generally like we were lied to our whole life. And we talked about it a lot. We still sometimes to this, we're still very close. We talk about it to this day. And it's, it's kind of, you know, crazy that we were together when it happened. If that makes sense, like it's this weird karmic thing, right? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're still pretty close. Besides the testing for the actual drug in your system, had, you, had it occurred to you at all to also keep your, you know, the DNA that was on you, like your, your underwear or anything else to, mm. to get mm. a, a rape kit, basically? It hadn't. Um, and I think by the time we looked this up, I, I just felt really uneducated. I did. That's why I started the matriarchy, because I, I felt like, <laughs> why do people keep telling me to be safe when I'm walking home or traveling? Like, when I looked up the stat, it said four out of five times, it's someone you know. And I had never really thought about what that fully meant until it happened to me. I'm like, oh, it really isn't ever strangers. For some reason, I never really, I, I think maybe that day when we were talking about it, I looked up the rape kit and I looked up that stuff, but... Um, for whatever reason, I really zeroed in on the Rohypnol and being able to get tested because that felt like something if I had known, I think I would have done that immediately. Well, the reason I ask is because just yesterday, coincidentally, I saw an episode, I'm a Grey's Anatomy fan, Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. saw an episode for your uh, edification, season 15, episode 19 of Grey's Anatomy. The whole episode was devoted to domestic violence and rape and sexual assault. And so one of the things that they featured in the episode that I thought was so powerful was the process by which a rape kit is collected. And 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 I didn't know this, but I, I don't know if this is like state law or federal law, but the uh, victim in the show was in the hospital already. And so at each point, you know, if they have to take a picture of her, if they have to measure something, if if they have to do a swab, at each point before they even start, they have to say what they're going to do and ask for consent. That scene enacted maybe 15, are you ready for the next step? Are you ready? And then she would say yes. And so you could hear the visceral like 15 yeses in a row as part of that scene. I thought it was really powerful. 
mm. because you are in in the actual collection of the the rape kit DNA, and there's a enactment of what is proper consent and what should have happened, and right. the agency right. given to the person that's been victimized that at any point they can stop. So. It's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, I know a lot of rape kits have gone untested and just sit around, um, but I haven't dug into it more than that. I think like this is the tip of the iceberg, right? I think when you look online, there's a lot of stats, but there isn't enough color or nuanced or stories from real people to fill in what's actually going on. And so I think that's a lot of what we're doing right now is we're really digging to figure out like what the fuck is going on. Even if we were to address the backlog in rape kits, which thankfully lots of advocates and nonprofit organizations are doing right now in this country, to some extent, there are some prosecutors that are calling attention to this issue as well. That still doesn't address the rape culture in our society, right? And it doesn't address the law enforcement who's collecting the rape kit and the impediments that, that keep someone from actually wanting to report. Even yep. if the rape kit yep. is going to be taken and going to be used to investigate and prosecute a case. I mean, I don't think I've ever, if I'm with women and a group of women that like, you know, I feel comfortable with, I sometimes will just say, like, I'll bring this subject up. And I, maybe like one time there wasn't anyone else at the table that had been assaulted, but there always is. Like, and women, it'll, it never, ever is a stranger in an alley. It's my dentist. It's my doctor. It's, you know like my childhood friend, my best friend in college, it's always somebody that kind of had this access. And it's really scary to think about that because, you know, one of my guy friends, what he, the comment he made was like, you know, people always try, we're always trying to make decisions based on previous data, previous experiences. And he's like, if I were a woman and this happened, my takeaway would be, okay, I guess I can't be friends with men ever again. Right. And he's like, so how do you move forward from that? Which I think is tough for people or me too, is it's, I mean, now I've made some peace with it and I've, but there's no way to really discern. Getting back to your thought and your reflection, if you were to have been given information about going to the hospital and getting the evidence collected, you said you would, but what about the, the step going to law enforcement? Yeah. Would that be something that you would even you would consider? Yes. yes. Like if I had had, that was actually my first thought. It wasn't just about proving that it happened. I want a way to prove, like report him with proof. I've heard since, since I've talked to so many people, women about this, um, I have heard that you can still report it. And in a, if enough people report someone, at least I think in some states, they might be able to like do something. But I, because I have no proof and it was, you know, five, six years ago, now it feels like I don't, I feel powerless. Like I'm like, I don't know how to, and I, in my mind, I'm like, it's so easy to just say I didn't do it. And to then drag my life through all of this with no proof feels just like a big ask. Yeah. And that, so you, what you're referring to is the statute of limitations, which differs from state to state. Mm-hmm. It's possible, like you said, if, if this is someone who engages in this behavior, it's likely that it's not going to be the first and only time. And so there could be a possibility in the future that you may be asked, someone will locate you and ask you to be a corroborating witness for a future victim. Right. Right. And I, I mean, it's easy to say now, but if I could go back in time, I wish I was, I think if I had had more information, I honestly think one, I would have done something and I think it would have lessened the trauma a little bit. I think part of the trauma is like, you feel so unsupported. There's no tools, there's no tactics, there's no knowledge. And then when you try to talk to people about it, most people treat you like you're this like kind of dirty or like it's a dirty word. And the, 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 the language is so internalized. You were, you were raped, not 
he raped you. And did you tell anyone besides your friend? Did you, did you tell family at all? Yes. So I told my mom and then I told one or two friends and the response was not great. So then I stopped telling people because I learned that when you have expectations for people to respond a certain way and then they don't, it's something called second trauma. So and that can often be worse than the first. And I just didn't feel supported. And also I felt like people were scared. Like it was a scary thing because um, also, especially with friends who haven't gone through something, someone made this comment to me. They're like, you know, people don't want to feel like it could happen to them. Um, you're a woman who lives in New York. You're successful. You have a normal life. People want to believe this happens to people that don't make good choices. Like they somehow want to victim blame or they don't want to feel like it could happen to them. And so the general tendency is to try to pretend like it didn't happen or to try to find a way to blame you because then it makes them feel more safe. And I really thought about what that meant. And I was like, okay, that's fair. But you're shouldering the burden now with your friends and family not or not having supported you, which is unfair. If you had your choice now, what would you have liked them to do? How would you have liked them to respond? I mean, I just wanted one of them to be angry at the guy. And I mean, I, you know, I, I don't believe that you can expect people to respond a certain way and then they do it. I think how people respond is how they respond. It's their reality. It's their experience. It's, I, I don't hold it against them anymore. I think I just, what was a wake up call to me is that just because people love you and they're in your life does not mean they're also not in the internalized misogyny fabric of society. And so I don't really need them, if that makes sense, to respond a certain way. But back, in the, back then, I would have wanted them to encourage me to speak out. Did they discourage you? Yes. Every single person was like, why would you want to be known as the girl that got roofied? This will be embarrassing for me. Yeah, people discouraged me. How would it be embarrassing for them? Is it because this person was known to them in the community? that No, just because people, like, like people in my, oh my God, in the Indian community, people still say, I've heard my uncle say this, so pe- women don't report it because it would be embarrassing for them. Like there's still this feeling that it should be embarrassing for the woman somehow. And it's like, it's not embarrassing. It's actually really fucked up that a man would do that. So yeah, there was a feeling of, it's not that people want to support him. It's that it would like be dishonorable to the woman. Just to confirm, if God forbid something like this happened now, you would have, you would make a different choice yes, and you would feel differently about it. I'm getting there, right? It's a process. (laughs) And what was part of your journey to actually help you to reach this level of openness and awakening and awareness? So I, um, when I first decided to confront it years after it, like three years after it happened, um, in a Facebook group, I put a post up that was, and this was before Trump got elected. So it was like when people weren't really talking about this stuff, I put a post up and organized a meetup at a coffee shop about like, oh, other survivors, I'm just holding a meetup because I'm trying to heal. And I posted it in a private Facebook group, like five women RSVP'd and then one woman showed up (laughs) and she was awesome. And she, she actually told me that it had been 10 years since it happened to her. And it was the first time she had ever talked to anybody that wasn't a therapist about it. And that was really powerful. We just sat there and talked for three hours. Was she the first person you disclosed to after your family and friends? Mm -hmm. In between that conversation and the actual incident, you hadn't sought therapy? No. She, now the therapist I'm going to is someone she recommended. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, well, I also didn't, I had never been to therapy. And I actually learned that there's trauma specific therapists, which is actually super helpful. So that was helpful for me. Well, you, I guess you don't have any comparison for a regular therapist versus yeah. someone that's trauma trained and sexual, you know, trained in, in power and control dynamics. 
but I've heard stories. <laughs> but what's been helpful for you in terms of your therapist's training that you intimate would not be helpful if you were working with someone who didn't have that background? So I think one thing she's done with me that is um, super helpful is because she, I think because she's specific to trauma, she literally has like textbooks and terms for everything. Um, and so she's learned very quickly that I respond well to information. And so we'll talk about the feeling stuff, but then she'll always teach me here's things that are normal. And here's like kind of the chart of like the different journeys people take and what happens. And that's been incredibly helpful because it makes me feel really validated. And I think I'm, I respond well to information and categorization and terms. And um, so that's been really helpful. And also, um, I actually really like that she called out that the trauma is a specific thing that I should deal with in a different way than other things I might be going through. And so it's been helpful to just focus on that piece of it for a certain amount of time before I think about other things in my life, because I think it's probably a root cause of other things. So aside from the educational aspect, providing information, are there any other techniques like somatic techniques helping you to understand how it impacts your body yeah. or your food or nutrition choices? Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We walk through all of that. She's like, here's like, you know, a chart of all the things. Let's talk about each one and what you might be doing in each one. And then she'll walk me through the spectrum of like what's problematic or something we should work on or something that's like, oh, that's just normal. And then she'll give me like body techniques to like, I guess what trauma does, which I've learned from her is that it reduces, you kind of have this like responsiveness ability. And then sometimes you'll go above it and you'll be like hyper responsive, or sometimes you'll go below it and you'll just be like wanting to lay in bed and be sleepy and tired and all of that. And most people, the healthy part to be in is the responsive part where like you can hear something, which is what the girl I'm dating around did and not be reactive. You can kind of think and then respond from a place of security. What trauma does is it significantly reduces your ability to respond that way. So you're either hyper, hyper reactive or you're laying in bed. And she gave me physical ways to when I'm feeling like I'm going to be one of those two things to come out of it and to be back in that responsive state. Wow. And I just actually saw an article yesterday about Simone Biles, the Olympic gymnast, who talked about how she, her response to trauma was to constantly sleep. So that's very accurate mainly because of depression, but also your body shutting down and not yeah. be, being overwhelmed. No, that's really normal. They were like, you're, and they're like, and sometimes what happens when you're dealing with trauma is you're either like hyper reactive or you'll just lay in bed. And I went through a phase where I just wanted to sleep and um, it was really unlike me. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I think, I mean, I'm 31. That's still young-ish on the grand scheme of things. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm getting older. I'm not 23 anymore, but I actually tell women this all the time. I'm like, if you feel tired all the time, that probably isn't just like you're getting older. Like we're not that old, you know? Um, and I think that's helped like really, really um, saying that over and over again has helped me realize that sleeping a lot or being really tired because of work are signs of depression. In the interim period between when the incident took place and when you actually started seeing a therapist and you were able to access these tools for yourself, what were some of the ways in which these symptoms actually impacted your functioning, professional or social, and impaired it? Yeah, what's lucky for me, I guess, is I work, I have my own company. So to some extent, and it's like a small company still, to some extent, I can decide how it ebbs and flows and what energy I want to put in day by day. And so how it impacted me, and I think this is maybe just how I work anyway, is I can work really hard for four days. And then sometimes I'll need two, three days just to like be lower. And it's not always weekend, weekday, sometimes that can vary depending on my hormonal levels and my mood. Right. And so honestly, I mean, I think, um, I went through a period where I just wanted to sleep 
And then I went through, on his, uh, last year, I went through sexual harassment from a potential investor. And I, I really did kind of shut down because I had put so much, poured so much effort into getting um, this investor. And then like long story short, basically during due diligence and whatever, he started calling me late at night and harassing me a little bit over text. And it just became, I'm like, okay, I, I, I think because I had gone through the assault five, six years ago, I just, instead of just saying, well, we need the money, I'm just going to deal with this. I put a foot down and said, I reported it and they fired him, but they pulled out. And that was like an additional trauma. Right. And I, um, that was hard because I, you know, I was like, it was like, it's almost like, okay, he might not have roofied me or whatever, but you kind of, you know, you used this power dynamic between men and women where you felt like, oh, because we're giving her company money, she now owes me something. And like, that's really fucked up. And, um, I know that he thought that I know that's why he did that. He wouldn't have done that with a guy. He couldn't have, you know? So let me understand. You were saying that there were periods of time when you felt tired. Well, essentially, no, no. Prior to that, essentially, were really immersed in your work, and and you you just overcompensated through your professional dedication in order to not deal with the trauma. Yeah, and I think I've always been somebody who likes work, but I pro- probably I, I I'm still in therapy, so I don't know. But yeah, I guess so. I wanted wanted to call that out because there's such a myth around trauma creating impairment academically or in terms of productivity. And many people actually respond to trauma by actually dedicating themselves to work in a way to sublimate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it ends up in some ways falling under the radar amongst mental health professionals who subscribe to this myth because I've heard people say, that child is not traumatized or could not be abused because he's doing well in school. So that means that anybody who's at an elite institution, yeah. like we should just take all, nobody who's at an Ivy league could be possibly traumatized because they all are doing, or they did well enough to actually right get into those universities. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's sad to say, but there's probably almost even a correlation. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, or not even a correlation, but you know, there's probably no relation. It, it, I don't think it impacts. I think even if I hadn't gone through trauma, I, I, I like working. I'm, I'm, these are my good working years. You know, I have a lot of energy, but I think um, it doesn't affect productivity like that at all. I, it's, it's a myth. Well, getting back to the Asian American community, I, I feel like my high school was predominantly Asian American. And subsequently, since our various reunions, I've gotten to know a lot of people. And I was surprised to learn that a lot of the Asian American acquaintances, now friends that I grew up with, had experienced abuse, family abuse, family violence, or coercion in their childhoods. And I mean, anecdotally, you know, they sublimated it through school. Through school. Because this was something that was both a refuge for them and a way that they could control an aspect of their life. Right. And that's what I've subsequently learned through talking to various mental health professionals too, that, you know, this is a group of people that very much go under the radar. And I don't know if you know this, but Asian American women is has the highest suicide rate out of all the groups. I do know that. Yeah. I mean, we, it's a tough, it's, it's a weird spot, you know? I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think like there's, I also think there's such a myth that strength is in silence. And I think in Asian families, that's, that's what you're taught is like, oh, well, she was just vulnerable or she was doing this because she wasn't strong. I'm like, no. She's doing that because she is strong. 
And because she's standing up for future generations and life is not about avoiding emotion and vulnerability. It's about confronting it and kind of ripping it open. And, and I, I think that change is starting to happen with, I see it now in Indian women my age and maybe even a little bit younger, I'm doing it, but it is, it, I, I still find Asian women still, we still as a community struggle to be as vulnerable as white women, I think, because there's still a reputational risk that feels much higher because you feel, I mean, you know, you, your family plays a very different role in your life, even through like, I don't know, basically death. <laughs> so it's, and it's hard for people to understand, like you know, people were like, I can't believe that you wouldn't talk about assault, even though you believe so strongly in this because of your family. I'm like, I, because you don't understand what it's like to grow up in an Indian family. It's just different. Um, and I'm like, I'm giving myself permission to feel, to feel out how I feel about it before I speak vocally about it. So it's taking me longer, but I think that's okay. That's just my journey. Can I ask if you ever shared your assault with your brother? No. Okay. So you never asked, you never shared with him. Or I, you, I can't ask. No. no. Oh, okay. But that might be specific about, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. Um, I've never shared it with a sibling. No. Now you, were ta- you referenced your boyfriend mm-hmm. as being a feminist. Yes. Did you meet him soon after you started therapy or was there a, some correlation to your yes. being open to? Yes. Oh, okay. So tell us about that. I, after my last boyfriend and I broke up, I, not only did I start going to therapy, but I also did like a lot of self-reflection. Like I literally would sit in cafes for hours, writing out what I wanted out of life, what I wanted out of a partner, what I wanted from work. All of those things end up coinciding, right? Like love and career are not binary things. They're, they're very intertwined. Ironically, I did not write down that I had to have a feminist boyfriend, but I think some of the qualities I listed probably correlated with those things because that one of the biggest things was security. Like I wanted to date somebody that was secure enough that we could live our lives without feeling like we had to give up things, sacrifice for each other. Um, Because again, you're taught your whole life when, especially when you're an Asian woman, sacrifice, not really compromise. What they really mean is sacrifice. And so when I met him, I remember the first thing I thought on our first date was, well, even before we met, it took us a few weeks to meet up because we were both traveling and it was very easy to see even from his text that like, he didn't make comments like, oh, you're traveling all the time. He, he just, you know what I mean? And men do that. Men would sometimes be like, oh, wow, you're always somewhere. And they don't mean that as a good thing. They don't. And he didn't make those comments. And then on our first date, he was just secure. He was funny. But it took me a few dates to realize there was little things, right? Like the things, the books he would send me, the, the articles he would send me. And I had never dated somebody that was proactively sending me feminist articles. And he was reading Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. And there was something, I don't know, really freeing about that. And I remember the first time I traveled when we started dating, I was so used to that being a fight with previous boyfriends. Like they just didn't do well when I wasn't around them all the time. And so he just didn't do that. There was no level of like, oh, we haven't talked or it was just kind of like, go do your thing, have fun. So I think going to therapy, learning about myself, learning what was important to me and really truly being in a place where I say this to every woman now, I'm like, I was at the point where I was like, I'm single and I'm happy. Not like I'm pretending to be happy and every woman, but really and truly, I love being by myself and I love reading and I don't really like being out all the time. And I know exactly who I am that, or at least who I want to be, you know, I'm still learning. Um, I think that made it much easier to be in a relationship with somebody that was in the same place and wasn't looking to fill some hole. I totally agree with that as well. However, there does seem to be a dearth of men who are secure, who are able to resist all of the different ways in which our society molds them into being 
not secure. In, I know. And, and so I'm curious, what is his background? Yeah, it's interesting. Grow up and, and how did he end up becoming a male, his cisgendered heterosexual feminist, right? I'm still trying to figure this out as is his sister. We don't know how he ended up such an angel. <laughs> Me and his sister talk about it all the time. She's like, he's an angel. I don't know how. And she's a big feminist too. Um, so he grew up in Long Island and he's Jewish and I, he went to Georgetown and I think he just, honestly, I don't have an answer for this. I, I don't know. I, I think he took feminist classes, but he didn't major in it. Um, he always had a lot of female friends, which in my experience, like, and not female friends that he like secretly wanted to sleep with, but like female friends that he just wanted to connect with and uh, like be with and, and that he lo- like, loves, right? Like he loves them. And um, now moving forward, I don't think I would date a guy who didn't, ha- I mean, hopefully we'll be together forever. But if, if when you date a man and he doesn't have close female friends, I do think that's a sign of like females are only for dating or fucking or whatever. And that is a red flag. And I think, I, I honestly don't know how to, we've only been dating, a, you know, it's just a year, so we haven't been dating for a super long time. But I, maybe it's, you know, I think, I don't want to speak so specifically to his background because it's also his privacy, but I think how you grow up can either be exactly how you end up or how you grow up can be something you use to shape how you end up. And I think both me and him, one thing we probably share is that we are who we are despite our upbringing. Yeah, and I, I don't want you to, I don't want to be intrusive either. It's right. just so it's such a puzzle for me to want to figure out what are what's the recipe for a male feminist. What's the recipe for any feminist? You should interview him. You should. <laughs> okay. I, because I think I I um one of my friends was making this comment about him that's very close to him. She was like, "It's so amazing that you found someone that's because she's like it matters so much to you that you could argue you wouldn't even be able to date somebody that wasn't like this." And then she's like, "But then on top of being that way, he's like handsome and smart and really sweet." And she's like, "It's not like he's one or the other. He just he has like he's uniquely feminist in a way that you probably wouldn't have been able to discern from a dating profile, but here you are. I do think one big thing, and he can speak to this more if you interview him, he reads a lot of feminist books uh, and always has. It's not just because of the movement. It sounds like he's just been reading them since he was young, but I, I don't know why he's like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the feminism is, is like an F word. It's like a, st- a stigma that even right. t- today in the various communities that we interact with, there are people who aren't comfortable with applying that label to themselves. No. Let alone women, not right. let alone men. Let alone men. men yeah. Right. And, and there are women that we know who are even, even more so working in the space of ending gender-based violence that I know who aren't necessarily actively consuming literature and content that are feminist in nature about systemic making systemic change and so that in itself is just even more surprising to me it's really it's it's honestly surprising every day like he literally saves newspaper articles of like oh these women in nepal died because they had to go to a menstruation house or they like he reads the newspaper every day i think there is something to just voracious reading because i was like that when i i mean still like that but from a young age one thing we both share in common is we read like high volumes of content. And I think it helps you break out from just what people are telling. Like you're not just, you're not just seeing what's fed to you. You're going out in search of content. And I think that makes a big difference. And I think also if you're someone who really cares about economic growth, for example, uh, sustainability of our communities, of our planet, it makes economic sense as well to be a feminist. Yes. And 
And it's actually shocking and surprising that more people aren't, more men who are in this in the field of investing or social impact, for example. They're yeah, they're they're not seeing I mean, we all know that obviously women make up half the population of the world. And so investing in women's empowerment and education and literacy, et cetera, is helpful for building sustainable communities. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that. What what is the matriarchy? So, I'm, you know, it's funny. I started the matriarchy sometime last year because I started to wonder why everyone always talks about the women's movement as a smashing of the patriarchy. And I was like, OK, like, that's great. But I, that also feels violent. And I'm trying to come at things from like I want to be angry, but I'm also trying to come at things from a place of love. And I don't know, it makes me feel a little bit better, I guess. And then I started to think about like, well, what do it's not just that I want a man's world to go away. What is it that I actually want? And then it struck me that we just never use the word matriarchy. And then I, the weekend after the most women ever got elected to the house, I was doing some domain research as entrepreneurs do. And I was like, the matriarchy.com is available. And I thought that was crazy. So I just bought it. And the issue I do care most about is gender-based violence, because I think, I mean, and I think gender-based violence and how we give and receive love as individuals, whether it's romantic relationships or friendships, that does play into the foundation of how we respect other people, right? Like it, it's, it's like how you love a man or a woman or anyone in between shows how you respect them as a gender. And anyway, so I started the matriarchy as a group of women right now um, to discuss what our beliefs are about our own bodies. And, and it's become this WhatsApp group of women who share things about, you know, what they're working on in this space, um, as well as just different articles they're reading about sexual violence and domestic violence. And I think it's, it's interesting because it's women from all different parts of my life. And there's a pretty big spectrum of people who have never talked about this stuff all the way to people like you who are doing amazing work in this space. Um, the initial, the first idea that came out of this group, and I tried to bring together um, people from different professions. So it's like doctors and therapists and lawmakers and filmmakers. And, and my hope is that if we pull together our resources, we can actually start to make change at the level of the law. Um, so one of my friends, Amanda, she is a federal prosecutor in Michigan. She's this Lebanese woman, totally smart. And, um, you know, people like that actually have a considerable amount of power. Um, so do people like you who are creating art, because um, oftentimes it's like art dictates culture, dictates law. So the goal is to make change at the level of the law. And eventually when I'm brave enough, I want to maybe in April bring together people in some kind of fishbowl event, um, make it gender inclusive and start to bring men into this conversation, too, because I think it is in their best interest to also push this forward for a better economy. So sometime in April, um, hopefully when I have the courage to send this email out, um, we'll have some kind of fishbowl event around this stuff so we can start to not just talk, but also listen um, for change. Well, I'm looking forward to being a part of that conversation. And thank you so much, Anari, for sharing your insights and your story with us. Thank you so much for having this platform. And likewise, you've been through a lot. So I, um, I'm always thinking about you. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.